You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Caitlin, Patrick, Mark, good afternoon. It is uh, May 14th, and it's another week, another episode of the Beltway Briefing. Caitlin, I think you had a you had a big week, big week driving your uh, your new convertible up I ninety five from Florida. You, you you saw the country, Caitlin. What what you what was the most interesting thing about your uh, drive? Well, we're, we're in a real crisis with this colonial pipeline situation. I had to stop every half a tank to top off before I hit the, uh, you know, North Carolina. And uh, it was it was a little stressful. I waited in a gas line, just like many Americans did this week, for about 35, 40 minutes. Had a lot of stress driving around trying to figure out where I was going to top off and fill up before the North Carolina-Virginia border. And um, still, you know, just that half a tank. And like a lot of Americans, having trouble finding gas right now it's been a it's been quite a a rough week actually it's insane and they paid five million dollars in ransom to turn the pipeline back on by the way in bitcoin the whole thing is insane completely insane but you know i think if if it demonstrates one thing it demonstrates the clear importance of pipelines it does uh Unless you're in the renewable energy business, Caitlin, in which, uh, which my car unfortunately is not an EV. We <laughs> love the say, electronic only, vehicles, yeah. electric. If vehicles. only American auto manufacturer. If only there was some other way, right? <laughs> my, uh, we're, we're working on that, aren't we, Patrick? We are working on that. Let's. My do it. daughter was worried about having to go get gas, and I told her, "Well, I don't have to worry about that. I just plug my car in every night, Sophie." So. I bet she wanted to borrow your car after you told her that. She definitely <laughs> did, and she definitely <laughs> didn't get the keys. You know, what was interesting and frustrating all at once up here in, in the Philadelphia area is that from talking to some people in the know, we have clients, as you know, in the pipeline business, in the energy business. I don't think there was actually a shortage up here, but people got spooked. And people right. went to the gas station and lined up, including one of the uh, participants in this podcast. And none of it was even necessary in Pennsylvania. But it just shows what what herd mentality you know, can do. It was the uh, toilet paper shortage of the equivalent yeah. of the toilet paper shortage yeah. of 2021. But it, yeah. I mean, look, gas prices are going up. It, like I filled up at over four dollars a gallon, and it's 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 a stress. We haven't seen this since you know the mid 2000, 2008, 2009, and well, and the driving season is upon us. So not a good way to head into Memorial Day weekend and mm-hmm. summer driving months. And I think the you know there is a bigger thing here, though. I mean. Washington has been worried for years about a serious cyber attack. And obviously they've happened in our elections on some level. Um, um, I guess those aren't cyber attacks, but they're cyber interference. This thing happens. Um, it's, It's a big deal. It feels like 
you know, it, we're super vulnerable. Yeah, the vulnerability is is real and is scary. And some of the money that is uh, being spent uh, by Washington and that the president hopes to continue spending is supposed to harden the grid against this. I don't know about the pipeline. I don't know enough about ransomware to know exactly which is which. But we really got to pay some attention to this because the vuln- we, we just saw what can happen. I, I guess it's human nature, but the thing that has always struck me is like <clears throat> nobody was thinking about pipeline vulnerability until <laughs> this this happened. And it's kind of the generals always fighting the last war thing. Like Howard, we, we need a good futurist. Do you know any? Yeah, I know some futurists, <laughs> Mark. Um, but no, like how do we how do we get ahead of stuff? How do we shift the mindset in this country in Washington and the town where we work? away from always reacting to the last crisis and in front of anticipating the next one. So we, we stop some of these situations. I mean, this whole century has been running from one crisis to the next, from 9-11 through to the pandemic. It's just, it's just brutal. And I don't have an answer, but I'd sure like one. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. nor do I, for sure. But one common characteristic of the crises you just listed and, and others that we could name, one common characteristic is they were foreseeable. These weren't invasions by Martians. These were foreseeable events, and yet we were behind we were behind 9-11, we were behind Superstorm Sandy, we were behind the, the financial pandemic, crisis, behind the financial crisis. So some, the solution has to lie in, in action on what is right in front of our faces. Do you think that there's any way to find common ground in Washington? Because to me, it all boils down to the leadership guys it's like this boils down to like the national interest and the parties coming together and thinking about the future and look they're not supposed to agree on everything people are, leader leadership doesn't involve um bringing the same point of view to everything like mark take our business you and i we agree on a lot of stuff and there's plenty we plenty we don't don't agree on which is healthy and makes for good business decisions because we're not we bring our own set of experiences and it's okay that they don't agree but i mean caitlin can can the republicans and democrats find common ground and take us out of the morass we're in and point the country to a place where we can work together to anticipate some challenges. Well, I sure hope so. And I think that this is, gets back to the point of this is why we need an infrastructure infrastructure 
definite clear regular definition of infrastructure package that includes money to harden and provide support for our pipelines, our electric grids, etc. And why we need to focus on yes, we saw a great meeting at the White House with um, President Biden and Senator Shelley Moore Capito and a couple of others. And we've been continuing to see bipartisan momentum. But if the, you know this this pipeline attack really actually showed how we need to focus on the basics of infrastructure, bridges, roads, waterways, what infra- what the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of infrastructure is. And that is an area where we can see some bipartisanship. And Republicans have come up on their opening bid uh, up to $800 billion in spending, which is significant. And let's focus on these issues where we can come together and make America stronger, safer, um, and create some jobs. But that's, you know, I think that's a great point. Patrick, you're quiet today, Patrick, so far. I don't want to be, you know, I would love nothing more than to give the optimistic, hopeful, we can come together answer. But I'm not feeling so confident these days. I, you know, I sort of before the pandemic, you would hear, I remember hearing different leaders and politicians reference, you know, our political divisions and that, you know, what, what will it take for us to come together? And one of the things that, you know, I would always hear leaders and politicians mention is some type of uh, event, some unifying event um, that would cause people to, to stop and recognize that, you know, our whole way of life is under attack. And, you know, uh, September 11th was an example of that, although I think the, the unity was short-lived. And I sort of thought maybe the pandemic, in a in a way, would, would be that, would be something that um, would cause a lot of Americans to feel a sense of shared experience. And what I saw, in addition to a lot of bravery and uh, heroics by our frontline workers and healthcare workers. I mean, I, I saw a lot of that. But what I also saw was the same cultural divisions on steroids that have been inflamed for the last several decades. And, and that made me as, you know, a younger American with a young family feel really, really nervous about what our future looks like and our ability to overcome our differences, to to overcome common common challenges. I, I I'm not feeling great about it these days. We yeah. did at least get some good news out of the CDC yesterday. You finally can take your damn mask off yes. inside if you're vaccinated. Yes, mask burning parties are going to be the new thing. It's going to be. Gonna I was be watching as Senator Collins saw the news alert on her phone and ripped that mask off on the Senate floor yesterday. Yeah, that news came. Excited. That news came a little late for many Americans who have been ignoring. This well, for, as for a I was correcting time. Howard on an earlier call with a client today, it's CDC guidance, not a mandate, not a rule, not a regulation. It's yeah, guidance. It may not, and by the way, it may not even be right. But right. it's all different podcasts. But to your question, Howard, I I think I, I think we're going to be okay. I hope we're going to pull out of this. But I think we are in a very bad spot. We've been in this spot before in our history, handful of times. But the spot we're in since since November's election is that we don't have common agreement on the legitimacy of the incumbent government. That was the that was a very bad step in a very scary direction. 
And we have got to all buy in on the same system within which we can disagree, within which we can win and lose. But unless we're all playing by the same rules, unless we're all playing the same game, we got a problem. You, you look at the times in this country's history when, when it's fractured. It fractured in 1800 and it fractured in 1860. And it is feeling like a, a fracture where you have some significant percentage of the American population telling pollsters that they think the election was stolen. So getting back to a common belief in facts would be a good start. I think you're right, but we have we have this culture war being fought, Patrick, that you referenced. Um, gotta the only way to beat that is to put money in people's pockets. People feel left behind. They have been left behind. They've been left behind economically. And I think the only way to overcome the division is with economic uh, opportunity. So how do we get there? And uh, what, what, how do, how do we make this a country where, you know, the American dream is still alive and well and capitalism is still alive and well, but um, people don't feel left behind. Well, Howard, if I could anecdotally talk about something that we're working on that's really cool and I think is right in line with that is, you know, we have a client based in Oklahoma, you know, red rural America, and they've taken a bet on, EVs being the way of the future. And they have built a charging network in Oklahoma of charging stations every 50 miles in a state that doesn't have a lot of EVs yet, right? They're getting on some of these chargers 1% utilization at best. But they believe that this is something that uh, is going to happen and is the way of the future and that we went from horse and buggy to internal combustion engine. And there's no reason that that should be the last advancement we ever make in how we get around. Uh, and what I think is so fascinating is even Republicans in Oklahoma who maybe don't care about the climate impact of EVs and all this stuff, they see our client putting chargers in the ground in small rural communities. And they, they like the economic development. They like that people are coming to these communities and having lunch while they charge up their EV. And so I, I, where it's like really difficult right now to find things that um, are kind of inspiring a little bit, what they're doing is making me think, look, this is a company that's taken a big bet, um, but they're getting lauded by Republicans and Democrats in the state for, for the investments they made and what they're doing. And so I think it's it's going to be stories like that um, with new technologies and not leaving behind. This is a rural state. You know, we all know there's EVs in California and Illinois and New York City and there's chargers everywhere. But, you know, not leaving behind an entire part of the country with this advancement, I think, is is really important and the right way to do it. Look, you don't have those charging stations across the border in Arkansas. 
you're not going very far, which is why as inspiring as that story is. And that's that's very cool and very important because of the, the climate implications in addition to the economic impact. But it's really a national question. It really has to come from the top down out of Washington because we are a a nation of states. And if we stop each trend, we know this, uh, Patrick, from our cannabis work. If you stop each trend at each state line, you're... <laughs> That that's where John Calhoun wanted the country to go in 1860. That that that's a big step backwards. The the president's proposal in the in the Jobs Act plan uh, includes some I've forgotten the number, but it is hundreds of thousands of charging stations. Yeah, nationwide, and that that's how you're going to inspire the the use of electric vehicles, and by the way, Howard, create jobs. That That is a jobs plan. It is a jobs plan uh, inspired by climate concern. But I I admire your your people in Oklahoma. We're going to need we're going to need the government to get this right, though. Well, in this case, it will to tax credit. So it was, it was a public private partnership with the state. And you talk to Republican lawmakers, they can't believe that in Oklahoma, there's charger every 50 miles. Um, It's to your point, a a federal investment that doesn't leave uh, communities behind rural communities, disadvantaged communities. You know, we all have experienced broadband and, you know, we're still fighting those battles and trying to make sure that people in rural communities have access. And that to Howard, that to your point, that all plays into people not feeling like they're getting to take part in these advancements. Right. And that's you have to include everyone. Thing is, the government can't spend endlessly. I mean, we are. No, but but the government can spend what it spends more fairly, more okay. justly, more, in, well, God knows more efficiently and more intelligently. But you're talking about economic justice. There's well, been- that requires compromise, Mark. Yeah. That requires yeah. coming together. That requires bipartisanship where everybody gives a little. It doesn't require a single party view of the world that requires just like you and I make decisions about our business. I mean, we're not as far apart as the Republicans and Democrats, thankfully, but uh, some days maybe. I believe in your election, the legitimacy of your election as CEO. (laughs) Thank you, Bart. Thank you very much. (laughs) So does the Republican leader in the House. He said so. Doesn't actions and words, but, but what I'm, what I'm saying is, uh, Look, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, the president's tax proposals. I'm not a big fan of some of them for policy reasons. I'm not a big fan of some of them for personal reasons. But that is an effort to make the tax code more just is what that is. And an effort to address those people who you feel who you were saying, Howard, feel uh, left behind government can't be of the rich, by the rich, and for the rich, even though we all want to be rich. That's a great thing. 
But that that's where I think people are feeling let down by government. They're feeling the government is working for somebody else, not for them. And and that's grounded in fact. And uh, Democratic through Democratic and Republican administration. Right. I was gonna say both parties. I mean, I remember yeah. when uh when I was a treasury in 08. And well, I guess it was, it had just, the clock had just turned to 2009 and um, we were talking about Secretary Geithner coming in and what's going to be different. And the answer was absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, when you bring in the head of the uh, New York Fed, you're not going to see a revolution. I mean, <laughs> and by the way, we didn't want one or need one, thank God. Um, and he was phenomenal, but I, it, yeah, it's, but I think, yes, it's government, but it's, it's the private sector. I've been, I've been reading all these articles, obviously the Gates divorce is like front page of every newspaper every day. I mean, it is, it is stunning. The wealth is concentrated. It, it's stunning. <laughs> and it, it's stunning how much wider the disparity got in the pandemic. Right. That well, and if, if ever there were a rich get richer and poor get poorer phenomenon. I don't it, begrudge Jeff Bezos building a $500 million yacht. I mean, okay. Like you, but, but like, but we're, but that it just plays so negatively. And then these cultural divisions come in. It's just an opportunity to, it just gives an opportunity to divide. To, to pivot from the doom and gloom for a minute here, prior to the pandemic, under Biden's predecessor, we had record, or record employment numbers. We had a booming stock market. Homeownership was on the rise. Jobs numbers were phenomenal. So, yeah, we had a pandemic over the last year and we're coming out of that. But I don't know, guys, I'm just not feeling as, as bad and down on everything as uh, you all are today at this I'm, Friday afternoon. I'm not down. I just think there's a reality that we have to confront if we're going to move forward. And I want to see us confront it. And I think it requires doesn't require socialism. It requires some form of conscious capitalism. It requires... It does. It requires thinking beyond just where we are today. It requires thinking a little bit differently. Like we got to do something differently. Well, don't you give the president, I mean, I, I this is a good example because it's happening in real time. This is why I think leadership matters. You know, no one in his party really wants him to try and get this bipartisan deal. <laughs> like he's kind of doing this on his own no. because he thinks that that's a big there part of what Patrick, there are at least two people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody. Two. There are at least two yeah. people. Yeah. Nobody's too, too yeah. strong word. But I mean, honestly, throughout the West wing, throughout the administration, throughout congressional leadership on the democratic side, everyone's just like the kind of feeling is hurry it up already so we can go do it the other way. And whether or not, you know, engaging in this way is the right thing or the wrong thing, 
I give him credit for he he's saying, I want to do this and I'm, I'm going to see if I can get to a deal and I think I can. And whether that is foolish or wise, uh, we'll find out, you know, soon here, but I give him credit for just having a philosophy of how things like this should happen. And listen, there's some lines in the sand. You know, if Republicans aren't going to play ball on anything related to the tax code at all. They're not. Uh, it's and he's be, acknowledged that. Yeah. It, it, but, well, leadership's acknowledged that. But, you know, what does that group that's negotiating ultimately decide to do? I don't think they give at all, uh, which makes it really hard to cut a deal. But, you know, I give him credit for trying. And I give uh, Senator Capito and, and the other senators who are in the room credit for trying as well. They're training proposals. They're going back and forth. Maybe they don't ultimately get a deal, but what's the alternative? You know, just governing by reconciliation and recrimination forever. Like that's nuts. I mean, I, I, I give them credit for trying. I do too, Patrick. And I think, you know, what we're hearing is this feels different than the sort of window dressing on the last COVID relief package of inviting Republican senators and the kind of the gang of eight into the Oval for a meeting and doing a great photo op. And then the next day saying, we're doing reconciliation. Um, we're hearing that this this feels a little different and they're taking it seriously. Republicans are coming out with a counter um, proposal, I think early next week, we'll see some details around that. And, um, you know, from, from what we're, we've been hearing and understanding it's significant that it's really just President Biden in the room and, you know, Ron Klain isn't necessarily in there next to him. And I think there's a little bit of consternation from Schumer's office and from some other um, influential staffers and in Biden's orbit that they're not in the room and they're not quite clear on, you know, what's being negotiated. But I appreciate the fact that President Biden is, you know, a statesman at the end of the day. He's a creature of the U.S. Senate. He knows how to get deals done. And I would love to see some... Um, some bipartisan support around infrastructure with a capital I, Merriam-Webster infrastructure definition. I think that's the second Merriam-Webster oh. reference. How about har yeah. hardening the grid against uh, cyber attacks? It is, is that under the capital I? Uh, I, think it, I think it absolutely yeah. is. That's infrastructure. Yeah, but I, I, I agree with what you and Patrick are saying. I admire the president and the Republican senators with whom he's meeting. For trying. The problem with that getting done, and, and this is kind of a theme that we're always talking to our clients about, you know, he needs 50 Democrats before he needs 10 Republicans. And Patrick overstated it a little bit, but only a little bit. It, there aren't that many Democrats in the Senate caucus who are rooting for the kind of compromise that would be required for bipartisan action. So I'm I'm a little pessimistic about it actually getting done, but I admire the effort and and maybe they'll surprise us. He doesn't Mark, need 50 Democrats if he gets more than 10 Republicans. That's true. And Mark, do you really think, I mean, yeah, you really think if, if, if Biden negotiates a deal that the Senate Democrats are going to walk away from that. I mean, yes, I'm sure they'll lose some progressive votes in the House, yeah. but do you really think Leader Schumer would would sort of buck no. Biden on this? No, For Bernie Sanders, Bernie would, Elizabeth so. would, and and let him more. Yeah, let him. Yeah, well, it, it, right. If you get 15 Republicans, I I'd love it. Look, that's a beautiful thing. 45 D's and. 15 hours is a, any way you get to 60 is a beautiful thing. Well, promises to be interesting. 
elsewhere in the world, sadly, we have, uh, I don't know if you call it up being on the verge of war, I guess on the verge of war in, in the Middle East. Um, some would call it war. Some would call it war. It's you've missiles. Forget the verge. Being being fired, um, scary situation, um, big implications. Uh, maybe the administration. I, I, I mean, they've they said some things that um, acknowledge the fact that the Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, Tony Blinken said that, but um, they've been fairly muted beyond that, Mark, on on this. And I'm, I'm curious in your thoughts, curious for your thoughts on the Israel-Gaza situation. Well, a couple of thoughts. Uh, disappointed, but not surprised that there isn't more outrage on the Democratic side at what is happening. That is, um, speaking of uh, disagreeing but respecting, I, I'm a respectful member still of my party, but I sure disagree with the Israel policy of uh, a lot of Democrats these days. I also think, uh, just as a political footnote uh, in the Mideast, uh, Netanyahu was a day or two away from having a government formed around him and finally being out of power. And this is really throwing a monkey wrench in that. And and that that is unfortunate, uh, not that the Beltway briefing includes Israeli politics, but uh, I will go on record as uh, as hoping they can get rid of Netanyahu. Well, the point uh, despite is this. You can't have moderation if you have extre- if you're Hard to have moderation extremism. with missiles coming in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 uh, extremely upsetting, and um, I think the administration, although they said Israel has the right to defend itself, is is potentially going to botch this one, and they need to be they need to be stronger and. The, the senator from Vermont um, should just keep his mouth shut yep. because it's, On this, yeah. it's embarrassing. Yep. It's, it's just embarrassing. Um, well, guys, uh, on that happy note. Uh, wait, I, I want to go back. Caitlin's shaking her head minute. at me. Caitlin, I, I just want to follow up on something you said. There's a little gloom and doom there. I was... I began my little historical aside by saying I actually believe we're going to be all right. And and I do because you and Patrick are going to fix this. Not personally, not alone, not individually. I have tremendous faith in belief in the next generation of leadership. Not so much my generation, (laughs) but we're counting on you guys to fix it. So I wanted to end on that. Uh, that inspired millennial uh, generation. Take us yeah. out of the darkness, Mark. We're counting on you guys. So, uh, Patrick, can we have a Martin and Martin ticket though? That that would get very confusing. <laughs> we well, go. yeah, it got very confusing yesterday <laughs> when, as I was leaving our meeting with Jake, and I said, "Oh, there's you know, Caitlin Martin," or as as I was uh, driving off with Jake. 
He said, is he, is she married to Patrick Martin? <laughs> and I said, well, no, but Patrick's wife is also named Caitlin, but yeah. that's with a C yeah. and it just got very, that's hilarious. Very it's a lot for a 10 year old. You guys are very confusing. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, but spirited as always, Patrick, you get the last word today. I, that was nice what Mark said. And I, I do hope that uh, we can put, you know, some of this behind us and to end on what we talked about at the end, you've watched this stuff on television and uh, to bring it full circle while we have our problems here. Uh, you know, I think about my little kids, there's still no other place on earth. I'd, I'd rather raise them. Uh, and Absolutely. you can't say that in very many places in the world. So no, it's, is that, are you talking about Chicago? Yeah, our specific. <laughs> exactly. Or is that the whole country, Patrick? Well, I was going to say, I only say that as the summer's approaching, because in January, I'd rather raise my kids just about anywhere else. Uh, but no, it's it, you're right. There is a lot to, to uh, be optimistic about. And hopefully, you know, we can address some of our bigger challenges. And I, uh, like we said earlier, I applaud the president and Republicans for attempting to to have an adult conversation and address uh, you know our serious infrastructure needs in the country, and we'll we'll have a lot to talk about in the next couple of Beltway briefings because I have a feeling this thing is going to be we're going to know which way this is going in the next few days, um, and then we can all yell at each other and argue about about Good. about who's all right. Is. Well, to be continued. Thanks, guys, and we will be back next week. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.